The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. The last couple of weeks we've been talking about the body, mindfulness of the body, and um, we'll finish that up this week, maybe begin the next chapter on feeling, mindfulness of feeling, but just to give people an opportunity to ask any questions about mindfulness of the body, I'll just say a few words and open it up. So uh, uh, in the past couple of weeks, if you haven't been here, we've looked at six instructions the Buddha gave about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the four postures, mindfulness of daily activities, and then uh, sort of a contemplation or reflection that the body, out of habit, we take the body to be a whole, but actually it'd be just as accurate to say the body is a collection of different components. So you can make a meditation of breaking the body apart into its component pieces, the heart, the lung, the muscles, the skin, etc. And then there is the uh, meditation on the four elements, which we did tonight, some variation of that tonight. And then finally, the corpse meditation. So we've been looking at that over the last four weeks, three weeks maybe, and uh, just understanding how little time we spend directly connected, directly aware of the body. So this doesn't mean we don't think about the body. We think about the body a lot, obsess about it. But the direct connection with the body, and a more authentic, direct relationship with the body, that's pretty rare. And maybe you noticed that it wasn't even easy to maintain it, even with the encouragement from the instructions. It's not so easy to maintain, moment by moment, that simple awareness of sensation. We really start to get how the mind is dependent on our ideas, our images of the body. How many times have I, in my own practice, seen and heard from other people about the practice with mindfulness of breathing? On some level, the person, you know, we are imagining the breath. We're basically being aware of our imagination of the breath which is okay, that you could be mindful of your imagination, but we're not being mindful. We're not aware that we're knowing the image of the breath or some mental fabrication of the breath. We think we're actually knowing the breath. This is really astounding that so much of the time we mistake our ideas of the body for the actual experience of the body. In very much the same way, this is our basic mode of operation in the world. We mistake the world for our ideas of the world. I mistake my wife for my ideas about my wife. You see, so this is a real pervasive problem. And when we take up these trainings, the six ways you can practice with the body, there's probably hundreds of ways, but the Buddha organized it into six meditations. It's a way, taking something relatively straightforward like the body, a way of learning how to have a more authentic, direct experience 
of the thing in and of itself. So I'll just leave it here uh, to see if people have questions about mindfulness of the body in any form, or just more generally, uh, questions about practice. Yeah, Jenna. Um, whenever I work with the trying to contact sensation, it's like I get confused by, like, I feel like um, I, this pervasive sense, like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what it, it's hard to explain, but it feels like I don't understand. I guess that's what it is. Because I feel like I can't understand the sensation, I can't know the sensation. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you think you call... So immediately then when the mind projects a thought like that, if we get seduced, then we feel we have to address the thought. That's the real seductiveness of the mind. It's like if the mind asks a question, why, do, why are we obliged to answer it. I mean, those of you who've worked with children or have children, you know, sometimes they ask a lot of questions that don't need to be answered, or this isn't the appropriate time. Well, our mind <laughs> does the same thing. And so, like, that doubt that is this, am I really feeling the sensation? Uh, that, do you need to answer that question? You know, it's like, we're not looking for a particular kind of sensation. So whatever it is that we feel, that's sensation. That's the great thing about mindfulness. It doesn't matter what it is. So is the question, you know, is this what I'm feeling, sensation or thought? Or more likely, and this is what I'm guessing, Jenna, that uh, you're feeling some sensation, but somehow you don't think it's a sufficient sensation, like maybe the energy, you know, the, the quality of sensation feels a little blocked, you know. And then, then the thought comes in, oh, that's not really my body. Well, if we have a blocked body, that's what it's like, you know. If our energy of the body, the energy of sensation is somehow stilted because of the way the mind and body have been interacting together, well, then that it's going to feel off. But it doesn't mean it's not sensation. It's as sensation as anything is sensation. So that is problematic for us. It's not easy to, tr when we open to the body, it's not our nature to trust it. We trust our thoughts about it a lot more than the actual experience. So I've learned this over the years, like with mindfulness of breathing. Um, how to be okay when the breath feels off. Now, it would be nice if the breath felt really natural and authentic and deep and smooth or, you know, whatever we imagine a breath should really feel like. But that's not, it's not about that. That's more of a pranayama or yogic breathing practice where we're trying to correct the breath and develop proper breathing. But being mindful of the breath is actually learning to inhabit the body as it actually is in the moment and not to be afraid or confused by physicality. And it's, it's a, you know, we need to, that's why I sort of tried to build up a little inspiration or confidence of the nobility of the practice because it's difficult to be in the body, to be aware of the body. Yeah, Paul. I have a question. Um, I noticed my mind 
doesn't really focus on any part of the body. It's just uh, sort of a, the body kind of feels like it's just a blob. Gets kind of sensitive and just energetic, and, but then um, and sometimes it kind of feels maybe heavy and pretty a little louder, Paul. Yeah, this just seems like the body is <clears throat> kind of getting heavy or like melting and stuff. I'm wondering at that point if it's um, wise to just abandon the body, the idea of the body, and just look at a more subtle part. Well, I think what I would be interested in is, uh, for example, when you look at the mind, where's what? What is the body? Where is the body? And is there a clear distinction in your mind between the body and mind? Like, are you saying that the body experience is very subtle, or are you saying that the attention wants to go to mind states? My guess is what you're feeling is the mind and body being really subtle. But that doesn't mean you're not aware of sensation. It just means that the kind of sensation maybe is being dominated by lightness. Right? Lightness is a sensation. So when the body, for example, is very subtle, it's probably not subtle as much as it is light. I mean, we, we use subtle, and, and we know what we mean by that word. But, but in terms of physicality, it's very soft. It's very light. It's very smooth, right? And maybe it has a cohesive feeling to it, like, you know, you said blob. <laughs> But, you know, so yeah, I would get interested in, in how, as the concentration deepens, the qualities of the body, the qualities of sensation, line up with the qualities of the mind. Right. I'm wondering, should I um, stay with that sort of whole integrated kind of uh, mindset where I'm kind of looking more subtly at, like, neutral feelings or trying to penetrate a particular part of the body. I can't really you know, feel like the belly or like my foot. But right. I don't really think about it. And I'm wondering, um, it's not my mind just kind of zones out. Yeah, yeah, because if the mind doesn't if the mind doesn't know its object, it zones out. And so one of the real challenges when the practice gets more subtle is it's not clear, the mind isn't clear what the object is. And then it stops practicing and then it zones out. You know, that is the zoning out. So it is important for the mind to know its object. And the question is, what should the object be? Well, it kind of depends on how you're practicing. But generally, you know, as a sort of general instruction, the object is whatever is predominant, which is sort of what you asked in the beginning. So if the mind is feeling sort of whole, then you can use wholeness as both an object for the body and the mind. Like I was saying a few moments ago, it's like that quality of wholeness may, you may not be able to clearly, it'd be interesting to see if you can clearly distinguish the wholeness of the body and the wholeness of the mind, or where the wholeness of the mind ends and the wholeness of the body begins. 
or maybe they're they're completely overlapping one another in that subtle way when the mind is relatively concentrated. So you know, generally the object the mind takes is what's predominant, or you might have a particular theme like uh, interested in any resistance, any dukkha, any struggling, and then look at that, right? And just doing four noble truths. So any kind of resistance or struggling, note, looking at it, uh, illuminating any cause for that resistance or struggling, uh, relaxing, opening to the cause, and observing when it uh, releases. And there is no cause, and there is no suffering. And then noticing that cessation of suffering. And notice what understanding arises when the mind isn't suffering. Oh, this is the way. You know, something like that. So that's that's often what I'll do is I'll, I'll I usually use the four noble truths when my mind is settled. Then in that relatively subtle feeling of being, you know, relatively content, relatively whole, spacious. Then my mind is interested in if anything at all is in is that like is that sense of ease fully mature, fully developed. Or is there anything whatsoever restricting the fulfillment of that ease, the complete development of that ease? And I look at that. And if I can't see anything, I don't assume there isn't anything. You know, I don't assume the mind is completely free. I just stay interested in the freedom and what might be in the way of it. And, and that's my object. You know, the feeling of release, the feeling of space, the feeling of happiness. You know, that subtle kind of happiness. Yeah, Jerry. And then next. Why does the sensation sitting on an ankle tend to visualize my ankle or a sensation? Is it necessary for the visualization to drop away? Do you experience the sensation or the visualization when you scroll in some way? Does that tend to drop? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's good to notice that the mind is visualizing the body part that you're paying attention to. So there's two things happening. The mind is thinking, but in this case using an image as a kind of thought. It's imagining the ankle, and it's presumably feeling some sensation in the ankle. And there, and that can be useful, like uh, if I'm going to... Um, you know, feel my hand on my knee, it can be a, a useful trick to have the thought, hand on my knee or the image, and it makes it easier to feel what's going on. So often the word supports the attention, it kind of creates a frame for the attention. Just like in Paul's question, you know, knowing that the mind is feeling whole, you know, just that thought, oh, there's wholeness, there's relaxation, there's peacefulness. Just that word can, in a way, put a frame around the experience of peacefulness. So actually, it's easier to be aware of the experience of peacefulness. So the question only, the only question then is, uh, does the image support the awareness of sensation in the ankle? Or does the image or the thought about the ankle get in the way? And so it's like you want to use it as a frame to go through it to the direct experience. 
and you just have to look. And, and, and so maybe you need it initially, and then you're in the, you know, in the twisting or the aching or the hardness or the softness or the coolness or the warmth of it. And then the thought or the image retreats. It's there, but it's not distorting the awareness of the sensation. So is it distorting the awareness of the sensation? Then look at the thought or the image as an image in the mind. Like just be clear, oh, imagining the ankle is like this. You know, picturing the ankle is like this. Sensations are like this. So that you're distinguishing the two. Clearly they're related, but they're really distinct too at the same time. I find that challenging, you know, even after many years of practice. Um, the mind conceptualizing its experience. It's just we're more familiar with the conceptualization process, you know, the thinking, imagining process. We feel safer there than in this wild world of direct experience. So it tends to be a trap for us much of the time, I think. I forgot your name again. Aaron. Um, I don't know if this is like a reflection or a question, but so when I'm meditating, I edit in all the time. I can't stop thinking. Like, it's gotten to the point where, like, so I'll meditate, and I used to be like, no, I shouldn't be thinking. I try to stop thinking, but it's gotten to the point where I just kind of like flow through thoughts and not try to stop them at all, but just continually goes, and it's like, it's like almost like a dream state, almost where like, I don't, I, I couldn't even remember what I was thinking about, and I almost have no conception or perception of time. And then I'll like come, you know, after half an hour, I won't even know it's been two minutes. And so I know I'm thinking about these things, and then when I'm when I'm aware that I'm thinking of, I'm thinking I should just be okay being right here instead of thinking all these other things about my life. And then, and then outside in my in my regular life, I feel like I, or in my in my, in my life, I feel like uh, a lot of times I'm always thinking about things, like conceptualizing a relationship or a situation, and thinking like this is where I want this to go, or, or like this is where this relationship will go, or this thing will go. And it's a lot of times when I'm not thinking about where it's going to go. But I'm aware of where all the possibilities are, but I'm not like trying to push them there. I'm just aware of them that I'm okay where I am instead of just being like, why am I not okay where I am? Why am I not okay where I am? And I guess I don't know if you talk a little bit about some of that. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably familiar, what you described familiar to a lot of people here, because it's, I think it's just the way it is in the mind. And it's actually, it's a real insight when we see that uh, movement of thought as a river, no beginning, no end, and how the thinking doesn't need Aaron or Mark or anybody to do it. It just does itself. Thinking is what the mind, this part of the mind, that's what it does. It just generates content. And this particular generation of content is sort of influences the next and then the next, and the next, and the next. And so when you do wake up, you know, and so not only is there this stream of thinking, but there's an awareness of this stream of thinking, this river of thinking, then 
what are the qualities in the mind in that moment? You know, you can really look, you know, is there a kind of despair? Is there a kind of like wanting to jump back in the river, get lost? Just like, you know, when we wake up from a dream, it's very similar. Like if something wakes you up in the middle of a dream at night, then notice, like, are you afraid of the content of the dream? Do you want to go back to the content of the dream? Are you both afraid and want to go back to the content of the dream? And we get, what we get is um, these little examples, like you shared, Aaron, and the example of waking up in a dr during dreaming. It's a little window on how so much of our life is, like you described at the end of your comment. Like you're noticing that in daily life, there's also this tendency to keep conceptualizing. And so the question is, do we want, is that OK? And are we OK about sort of being in our thoughts, and not only in our thoughts, but lost in our thoughts for large parts of our life? Are we OK with that? And what you suggested in your comment is, um, more that the positive end when you notice when you notice that you weren't so lost in thought that uh, forget exactly how you said it but that felt more skillful that you could make better choices or more natural choices and so this is for each of us to figure out so my guess is for most of us if the more we see that there will be this wholesome repulsion about being lost in thought that somehow we're going to start associating that with a sense of being missing our life, being disconnected in, a, in a, an important way. And uh, a wholesome fear will arise. And that wholesome fear will inspire us during our meditations to begin again, even though it's hard work. So even though it shouldn't be hard work because of our habit, it is very hard to come back and just be in the body, be with hearing, be with the breath, or whatever you're using to come back to the present moment. It's hard work, not because it's essentially hard or challenging, but because it's not our habit. Our habit is to be in that generation of thought, image, concept, one thing after another, flowing on and on. It's, it's very much, I mean, I don't know, I've never been addicted to hardcore substances, but I'm imagining it's very much like being addicted to addictive behaviors or addictive substances, where we, you know, once we're out of it, we crave going back to it. We feel off when we're not thinking. So we have to create a taste for simplicity, the mind that's simple because it's not involved, not lost in complicated thinking that kind of web of thinking. We think it's so important for happiness. But you know, if we really looked at the experience of ease and happiness in life, I bet we wouldn't associate it with a lot of thinking. Now, we might have a moment of happiness and then think about it, which is often how we ruin it. But, but the actual happiness comes before the thinking. It isn't about the thinking. And certainly, if we polled the group here tonight, we would all say, you know, there have been moments of a lot of thinking that have been very hellish, right? I mean, when we think about the really hellish moments in our life, 
probably in one way or another we were obsessively thinking about something, worrying about something, imagining something, fearing something. So we have a lot of evidence. The question is, how can we get out of it? Our, our tendency, of course, is to think about it. Oh, let me think about how I can get out of it. You know, and that's why in the Buddhist tradition there's such an emphasis, this word, it's a little neurotic how many times we say the word practice. But basically the word practice, which is, a th- of course, a thought, a word, is a sort of symbol for dropping into things as they are. So there may be thinking, but then in that experience of things as they are, thinking is known. Oh, there's thinking. Thinking is being known. This is how it is when the mind is thinking. It's just thinking. And in this experience of being mindful, we're not for or against it. So we're not being mindful in order to get rid of thinking, but it's order in order to not be confused by that stream of thoughts. So that's what I would really work on is as many times as you are aware of it, appreciate that moment, even if it's unpleasant. Like respect that you are aware of having been lost in thought, and it's like this, and this is good. Like, even though it may be unpleasant, you'll notice too that it, it feels right, as you suggested in your comment, it feels right to not be trapped, even if it's just for a moment before we get drawn back in for some reason. Little bits will undermine the whole process. We have to start somewhere. So wherever we're at in terms of like being dependent on overthinking, over-imagining things, that's where we begin. We can't begin anywhere else. You know, we'd like to begin as a fully enlightened person, but, you know, of course that doesn't work. So if we're already an obsessive, neurotic, fearful, greedy person, then our practice of mindfulness has to begin with this. Uh, yeah. Um, Say your name again. Uh, my name's Glenn. Glenn. Um, we're having uh, a lot of uh, difficulty with, with the meditation itself, just having a natural uh, case of ADD that I've been working for a long time. It's very hard to focus on objects and stay there and, and to notice one's been distracted. I know that we've talked a bit about uh, mindfulness of, of daily activity, that how meditation would help you in other daily activities. Can it work? the other way around as well if, you, if you're focusing on, on the mindfulness of your individual daily activities, will that help your meditation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And remember, it's so easy to make mindfulness synonymous with being aware of the breath and then the attention not deviating from the breath. But that's not mindfulness. That's being focused on the breath. So it's a concentration on that one particular object. So even if your mind has a tendency to move around a lot, all you need to do is inspire the mind to be aware of what it's doing. Not, it's not about mindfulness. It's not about controlling what the mind is doing. It's about being aware. So the tracking is that oh, now this is how it is, now this is how it is. Now I'm thinking about that, now I'm worried about that, now I'm back in the body and feeling bodies like this. And now, and so this actually, uh, we need, we want to configure the practice so this isn't like some insult. So, so much of the work of practice is 
understanding what we're doing and what we're not doing. And really understanding that mindfulness is, it, is no act of violence and it isn't against anybody. It's not against Glenn the way that his mind is now. You know, because that's what we think that, okay, I got a lousy mind and now I need to retrain it. So in some ways that's true, but the way we retrain it <laughs> isn't about fixing it. It's about, un like, if our mind really is off for some reason, like we have bad habits and we overthink things, then the correction isn't to think about that, it's to understand clearly how it is. So if we have, you know, ADD, let's say, uh, attention deficit disorder, or we're often distracted. <laughs> so whether you have it clinically or just a typical ordinary distracted human being, the question is, what's in the way of mindfulness revealing that distractedness? That whatever we refer to when we use the word distracted, can we be aware of that distracted nature? What would that look like? Can we be aware of it without judging it? Or without forgetting that it's like this? So being non-distracted, undistracted by the distractedness. What's actually in the way? I think what's actually in the way is that we're not interested. We, we somehow don't value it. I think that's probably more, an, more of an obstacle than people who tend to be sleepy or people who, the way they're chemically or wired, tend to be restless, you know, the mind's kind of not so focused, or people who over-focus. The problem with mindfulness isn't so much the particular nature of our minds, the way it's wired, the kind of chemicals we have going through the brain, as much as I think our interest. How much do we value mindfulness? How much confidence do we have that it really leads to happiness? Mostly we think distract. I mean, why else would we let the mind do what it does? Somehow we think it leads to happiness. You know, thinking about this, doing that, you know, having the radio going, listening to NPR, you know, reading the New York Times, talking with my wife, and eating. <laughs> and maybe doing other things that I'm not aware of, too. You know, and it's like, that's not happiness. But I'm, I, if I really look, I'll see that the choices are made because there's the promise of happiness. Well, turn on the new, uh, turn on the internet, you know, see if there's any news. It's a while before I'll catch the national news, you know. Maybe something's happened, you know, things like that. So we're all trying to be happy. It's just what we think will lead to happiness. And the question is, do we think mindfulness will lead to happiness? And you know, like I. I would think someone like me, who teaches mindfulness and who's sort of embedded in the middle of this community, that that would just come naturally. But if for me, it continues to be, I have to remember that actually I have a lot of faith that this is what leads to happiness. Because it's so easy for me, even though I, when I think about it, when I remember, yeah, I know this leads to happiness. But I have to keep reminding myself to act on what I know is true. So it's it's not easy. This is why it's so nice to come together to see there are other people who are interested in, in being more mindful. Uh, first this lady, and then you, Mary. Hi, Nancy. I'm visiting. Welcome.
Oh, sure. But, I mean, well, you know, for me, the, the emptiness is the emptiness of reactivity. And this is how the Buddha talks about it, too. The, you know, emptiness is, was emphasized in the later Buddhist traditions, but a little bit in the discourses of the Buddha, but it got emphasized a lot more later after the time of the Buddha. And at the time of the Buddha, he talked a lot about anatta, or the not-self, quality or characteristic of experience. So when the mind gets really simple, and there's awareness knowing the way it is, then it's really simple. And when that gets purified, so it's just awareness knowing the way that it is, then reactivity falls away. And so the Buddha would call that the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion, or the cessation of reactivity. And that's what that's the translation for the word nibbana or nirvana, is that cessation or emptiness. It's the emptiness of reactivity, the emptiness of self-centered drama in a moment of experience. And that's the flavor of experience. That's why we practice for that experience of the empty, the mind empty of self-centered drama and the happiness and the peace that comes. And so we talk about mindfulness generally as the means to that insight of emptiness, the emptiness of drama, of clinging. Does that make sense? <laughs> Mary, did you have a thought? Well, I was just going to ask if you could comment on um, how you, like, in a situation where you're meditating, but you're really planning a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> planning is not. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question because it's really true. You know, one of the things about the environment of formal meditation is it creates, it's a nice setting to plan, it's a nice setting to figure out problems because actually in life we have a lot of things we do need to think about. You know, there are relationships to reflect on, there are futures to plan, there's the past to regurgitate and learn from. Not all of this is neurotic. Some of it is quite useful. And in a perfect life, we'd have times to do that reflection with wise friends and alone. And we'd have time to meditate too. You know, time to journal, time to take a quiet walk around the lake and contemplate some of these important things in life. You know, should I leave my job? Should I continue? Should I invest in gold or have my money in the money market? <laughs> you know? But the problem is that we use those objects of planning or thinking as a way of creating tension and we basically reinforcing fear and greed in the mind. So it's no, no, no. I, I'm not saying you're situated. I'm just saying that the trouble is that it, it leads on to that. So there is a place for wholesome whatever thinking. But because the tendency is to always go there for happiness, and because if you reflect, you've however much pleasantness you get, 
it doesn't last very long, you know, and really get that, like, so that, your question, Mary, about how does the Four Noble Truths fit in, so when you find yourself, like for me, my classic thing would be to start renovating something, you know, or just generally fixing problems, but, you know, like the problem of my house and how I could make it better, and it's always pleasant when I begin. <laughs> but as I keep going, uh, at some point I realize something, like even if it's still at the pleasant state, I realize something really important, like I've done this many, many times. And eventually it ends, it doesn't end pretty, you know. It, there's some, even if it's mild, there's some tension. So part of the suffering, even when it's not hurting, Part of the suffering is, on some level, probably unconsciously, we know it doesn't lead to lasting fulfillment, that it's basically a distraction. I mean, this is how it is for me with even wholesome TV and wholesome movies, wholesome novels, is I'll see, I'll be really liking it. I mean, it's, you know, there are really wholesome, entertaining things out there. I mean, relatively wholesome, entertaining things. I mean, not, not just sort of reinforcing fear and greed, that maybe we're really learning something, even having some insight or some uh, important principles reinforced in the novel, in the TV show or whatever. But I'll notice in my mind that one of the things that's getting reinforced is that happiness comes from retreating or from disappearing from life, from leaving the present moment. And I see that as a very deep habit in my mind. Eating, and not because of the pleasantness of the food or the nutrition I'm getting for the body. Eating because it's an escape from the ordinariness of the present moment or from the discomfort of the present moment. Turning something on to watch, talking, so many ways of avoiding the present moment. And one of the things I've found over the years, and I think this is common, is that one of the greatest yucky feelings is that feeling of having been lost in distraction and then having to return to the present moment. And so one of the things that naturally has arisen in my mind is a kind of resolve or vow not to be surprised by the present moment. I want to I aspire to be so present in my life that I'll never be surprised by life as it actually is. And it's a lot easier on this just mundane level of being a human being with a mind and a body. It's much easier to function skillfully, not taking vacations from it. So I'm more careful about my distractions. Not that I don't sort of take up certain distractions, but I try to maintain a, a sort of a present moment awareness, even while I'm watching movies, even while I'm having conversations. And this is one of the things that mindfulness of the body really gives us, is if we maintain an awareness of the body, we can maintain that even as we're engaging all these things in life. And then there isn't this sort of, like when we, you'll see this, when we get really excited and start taking delight in thought, in movie, in books, in conversation. Part of the delight is temporarily escaping our life as it is. And then once we've broken, made that disconnect, 
then we start the kind of desperation of not wanting to reconnect. And so we get really hungry for the next distraction before this distraction ends. And I've really studied this a lot, just being mindful of my life. And I and that the uh, displeasure, the unpleasantness of that is I'm really uh, resolved to avoid that if I can. I don't like that dukkha. So even though it is pleasant, like I don't drink anymore, you know. And I know I think you know I know people who use alcohol, you know, in ways that doesn't seem to be that harmful, but. Even a little bit of alcohol, I notice that it it promotes this part of my mind that doesn't want to be connected with things as they are. And so it's like I don't want to go there anymore. Thanks, Mary. Other questions or comments people have? Yeah, and your name? Hi, I'm Andrea. Andrea. Yeah. Just um, a question I'd ask you with sitting in so if you didn't hear Andrea, she was talking about something coming up that's relatively new in her practice that a, a kind of sensation that is pervasive, is it one location or everywhere? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it has a particular location and seems pretty steady or static? Yeah, it's like a sheet of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think generally those are good signs that, because uh, a lot of that more subtle pain stays below the level of consciousness because it's yucky. And in, in a funny way, it seems to be true though, the more subtle the pain, the more subtle the unpleasant sensation, the more uh, disturbing it is for the mind. And so it may take some time both to build confidence and to develop skill on how actually to open, to rest, to be interested, to kind of bring a balanced mind to that feeling. And to just be really careful about any story you tell yourself about that. Because, you know, one of the ways we defend ourselves or take care of ourselves, as soon as we experience something new, like you have, then the mind tells itself a story about it. It tries to describe what's going on to itself. And it gives it, a, it seemingly gives it some power because it's able to tell itself what it is. But actually what it does is it stops the investigation because now we think we know what it is. So in any way you can keep that very alive and mysterious and unknown, which will make it more disturbing. That's in a way a barometer. You know, if it's disturbing, it probably means you're being more real with it than if it's, oh yeah, it's just that again. When is that going to go away? When is that going to break apart or something like that? So, you know, just to, like, if, like part of the story may be that it's never, it's never changing. And then, like, well, can I be with this as if it were never to change? You know, what would that be like to be interested in this? Is it really not changing? You know, so in one way or another, uh, finding skillful ways to be interested in it 
to lie down with it, to embrace it. You know, these are words we use. They're not a practice in in and of itself, but it can correct a very subtle aversion or very subtle, like I need to protect myself from this or some kind of judgment, like I'm practicing wrong. Because it's probably coming online because the, the practice has become more steady. And then something that hasn't been seen before is being seen. It's, uh, it's so much of practice is learning to honor things that are unpleasant, especially subtle things that are unpleasant, like low-grade, pervasive anxiety. And like I would sometimes when things like that are happening, I try to maintain it through the day. So it may, I may get to know it in the quietness of a meditation period. But then I try to remember it and see if I can maintain a thread of awareness of that subtle anxiety all the time. So even when I'm happy or in ordinary states of mind, I'll just see if, oh yeah, and that's there too. So that I see that, well, it's always been there. You know, and my life has been fine, or you know, what it's been whatever it's been. So I don't need to be afraid. I can really welcome this in, give it a space on the table. You know, it's part of how it is, part of who this, what this mind and body is. Jean, did you have a comment or thought? Uh, yeah, we're following Jack Kornfield's book. We have been now for a while. We're on chapter eight, moving on to chapter nine. Uh, the wise heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My name is Andy. Um, I was wondering, so just going back to what you were just talking about with um, pain or anxiety, and you're talking about be careful about you know, telling yourself stories or attaching stories to it. I'm wondering, would um, sitting with the pain or sitting with the anxiety and and having a dialogue with it, like asking. Well, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna maybe modify that thoughts that uh, are the cause for the mind to become more clear and interested, or skillful thoughts, thoughts that distort or confuse or distract the mind, are unskillful. So. For example, if we're feeling something like Andrea mentioned, the sort of a subtle anxiety that's sort of come online that we hadn't noticed before, then as we learn to be with it more, it might be quite useful to ask a question every once in a while, like, what's asking for acceptance? Uh, what's happening here that's not yet being seen, not yet being felt? You know, so depending on how you practice, but absolutely, there can be times when some language, some words, a question, can really help the mind open, see in a way that it hasn't seen or opened before. You just have to see, you know, whether you're asking questions as a defense, as a way of sort of preventing a deeper opening, or the questions, the word, is sort of illuminating how it actually is now for you. Thanks for the question. A little bit of time, yeah, Tyler. Nicole. So, as I am practicing mindfulness, mostly in daily life, you know, not so much in meditation, but in daily life, I feel like trying to practice, and when I try to practice, 
ourselves, you know, to be really honest about what, what might come up, like when you have the notion to be mindful, you might look the call, it might be that what you're really sensing is uh, it would be good to retreat from the world right now. Like maybe you, you're already experiencing a kind of tension or uh, stress and that somehow you're sensing it would be good to Refresh. It would be good to um, retreat from the busyness, the, qual the different experiences that are agitating for the mind. So that may be slightly different than the intention to be mindful. But that doesn't mean it isn't the right intention or a skillful intention to have in the mind. And so I would look carefully, like if you're, if as you're sort of, there, and of course this would arise in a moment of mindfulness. So there you are in your daily life doing what you're doing. And then this moment arises about this moment of like, oh, I should be practice I could be practicing. And there's that moment. And then right in that moment, like the kind of practice we're gonna do is really arising out of how it is right now. So right then, before you tell yourself what to do, stay interested in how the mind is. Like, what is the texture, the quality of the mind or the heart right now? What kind of medicine does it need? Because, and this is a just generally a really good point for us, because we talk a lot about mindfulness here at Common Ground. But a lot of the time, what our mind, our heart needs isn't pure mindfulness. It needs refreshment. It needs a break first. It needs some wholesome comforting. And generally, the way the mind, the heart, gets some wholesome comforting is it retreats into conditions that are pleasing, not conditions that are agitating. So that's why so many community members have spent so much money and time making this building and now the yard a really pleasing place. Because when you walk into the building, you know, the whole idea is that the orderliness of it, Julian spent so many hours each week keeping the building beautiful, as do many other people here, so that the orderliness of it, it just, ah, oh, you know, the world is messy. And hating it doesn't help, but it's nice to be able to go someplace that's quiet, that's orderly. That's why, you know, we ask people when you come to the center, if you want a loud conversation, go in the community room or talk outside. But once you're in the building, to just kind of use whisper, or at least in the lobby, so that people come, they can have a place that's relatively quiet. That's why when you know we try to have the cushions really orderly, you know, and the chairs, so that there's a there's this quality of like this is a sacred, protected space. So the question maybe is like how in your life, uh, in your particular set of circumstances, how can you create an outside, an external refuge that supports the mind finding an internal refuge. 
where it's not agitated, where it sort of can recognize its own wholeness, its own peacefulness. And so it's okay to sort of create some boundaries, like in terms of the other people, and to understand that this is more about um, taking refuge and calm and tranquility and peacefulness and whatever supports that. And really be creative, like whatever works, use it. And then when the mind feels refreshed, then notice the intention to be mindful. Because mindfulness is like an interest in outright exposure, not afraid of like letting life happen around you and in you as it actually is. And like realizing a freedom, like what a relief it is not to need to withdraw, not to need to fix people, not to need to make the situation different than it is. But it's hard to do that initially if we're already feeling uh, a little overwhelmed by life. And so, so much of the time we should respect mindfulness, but the first step might be uh, finding some refreshment for the heart and mind and really getting good at it. I often kiddingly say that starting in kindergarten, we should have been taught how to relax and how to find some of this inner peace. Because then it, then mindfulness actually is relatively easy if we feel comfortable in life. We have to leave it here. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words, maybe take a breath together. Appreciate these ancient and practical teachings. Appreciating all the people who've done the practice before us, the men and women. And we're the grateful recipients of their good efforts to practice. They had minds and bodies like we do. They had obstacles. We can feel grateful and we can also feel inspired to do the best we can to contribute to this dream of wisdom and compassion in the world, leading to the end of suffering. So thanks everyone for coming. And I'd like to give the monthly reminder and teaching on dana. Dana is the word for generosity. And at Common Ground, we use it as a central practice. And it's really about learning in life to freely receive and freely give. It really is what helps drop as, um, I forgot your name already, Nancy said about emptiness. It's funny how receiving fully and giving fully is the experience of emptiness. Emptiness is being in line with movement and the movement of life is receiving and giving. That's how we become empty of self-centeredness. How can we fully, completely receive and give in life? And so this is our operating principle here at Common Ground. You know, we have this building, we have a mortgage, we have paid staff, we support the teachers, we pay for electricity, all these ordinary things. But instead of charging or having suggested donations, what we do is we ask people once a month to remind people, I should say, to continue this reflection on receiving everything freely. So all the teachings we practice, I practice the whole community, we practice giving it freely, the building, the programs. And then if you contribute your time or contribute money, 
It's a free gift, no strings attached. You're not giving because you got, because that was a free gift. The teachings are a free gift. You're giving because it makes you happy. So we ask people to reflect, like what kind of giving makes you feel happy? If you give too much, it won't feel good. If you don't give at all or in any way in your life, it's not going to feel good. Your life's not going to feel good. So just explore that, both feeling good in receiving the teachings and everything else you receive in your life, and feeling good in how you give back, both here at Common Ground but everywhere in life. If you ever have any questions about that, feel free to check with me or other people, other leaders at the center. And Jerry, do you have any announcements tonight?